Federal spending on contracts for goods and services continues to grow in many categories. But according to research by Deltec, there's increasing consolidation of contracting vehicles by the government. And that means companies more than ever need to understand what Deltec calls best fit opportunities. Joining me with the details, Deltec's Senior Vice President, Kevin Plexico. Kevin, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. And give us the macro picture here, because... Congress keeps appropriating trillions of dollars for this program and that program. And even though we're under a CR, you know, for Lord knows how long, the market is basically growing. Give us some of the numbers you see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's, it's a really interesting market and a lot of diverse activities taking place between the economic challenges and the, the you know, risks of inflation and the Great Recession. But at the same time, the federal government is as healthy as ever in terms of uh, spending increases and the administrations and Congress's commitment to investing in government operations. So we see pretty vibrant market on the defense side, but in particular on civilian agencies with a lot more focus on civilian agency growth. While the continuing resolution is in place until December and, and holds spending at the same levels for, for FY 2022 for a couple months anyway, what Congress is negotiating around in terms of appropriations for 2023 is is pretty solid growth, almost almost as high as double digits. So I, I think it's going to be a good year for 2023 for contracts just by virtue of the fact that budgets are going to be increasing for most agencies. And the information technology piece of this that we tend to concentrate on, and I know you do, is hovering around $100 billion aside from the Technology Modernization Fund. What do you see happening in the addressable portion here? Any any top-line numbers that, that are emerging? It's definitely a, looking to be north of 100 billion dollars in IT spent. And I think it's going to be growing commensurate with the growth in the discretionary budget. I mean, you could almost literally plot a line of IT spending that that follows the same trajectory as discretionary spending. So as discretionary spending goes, so too does IT spend and frankly, spending on contracts. They're you know, kind of totally linear relationships. IT generally tends to do a little bit better, sort of like uh, has a lot of utility components into it. So even if government spending's down, it doesn't mean that the government can stop spending on telecom and networking and equipment and software, things like that. So it's relatively insulated from even budget ups and downs. And talk about the consolidation of the, especially in the full and open or unrestricted set of contracts. What's going on there that would mitigate in favor of having a really good vehicle strategy as well as just an overall product and marketing strategy? Yeah, I mean, there's some initiatives going on in government that completely run at odds with increasing participation in the government market. The the emphasis on what they call category management or better buying practices is essentially an initiative to drive agencies to reduce the duplicative contracts and adopt contracts that are already in place, which you know gives the government better buying power. But at the same time, it reduces the number of prime contract positions in the market. We've seen, despite the, the fact that contracting growth has been growing 20 to 30 percent over the last seven years, the number of unique prime contractors participating in the market has dropped about 20 to 25 percent. So it's this sort of inverse relationship. Uh, yet at the same time, the administration is putting a lot of pressure on agencies to increase their use of small business. And what we've what we've sort of seen is that that has translated into the small businesses that are winning the prime contracts doing extremely well, but it leaves out a lot of other participants that would otherwise like to be participating. And even in the small business and, and disadvantaged business category, the numbers show fewer participating companies, but the ones remaining getting more of that market too. Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't just affect small or um, I guess unrestricted is a, uh, synonymous with large, but it, it seems to affect everybody. All right. So Deltec has taken a look at various 
opportunities in different categories of types of contract, unrestricted uh, is the the main one. And just what are some of the highlights of the uh, best opportunities for 2023 in the unrestricted opportunity? Sure. So we've been we've been producing these reports for about 18 years now, just as a, a way of, of kind of giving a sense for the, the top opportunities, mainly bellwether opportunities that sort of give us an indication of kind of some of the trends in the market. And I, I can remember when we started doing this, most of the, the contracts were, you know, procurements for a discrete piece of work where a vendor would win it and they would do the work. What that's evolved into is is uh, pretty significant, large contracts that are awarded to a lot of vendors where the competition really, you know, ensues after the award is made and the task orders and discrete pieces of work sort of come later. What's interesting about this year is it's by far the largest combined value at $500 billion, so almost half a trillion dollars in in ceiling value across the 20 unrestricted opportunities that we're looking at. And that represents about a 50 to 60% increase over the next largest year. So very large GWAC, IDIQ type of contracts. Uh, GSA has the dominant portion of them with the, the recompete of the Oasis contracts with the Oasis Plus. They're on the third iteration of Alliant 3, which is planned for next year. Um, and then the Department of Veterans Affairs also has some really large deals. I think the two of theirs combined to about $125 billion, but they're more for health services and, and medical product type of, type of purchases that you'd expect out of the VA. We're speaking with Kevin Plexico. He's Senior Vice President for Information Solutions at Dell Tech. And moving down to the set-aside opportunities, what are some of the highlights of the best ones there? And give us a you know a sense of the numbers. Well, you'll have to stay tuned for next week. We haven't released the small business report yet. That, that one comes out next week, but it's the next most popular one of the, the reports we produce. I guess I should level set. We produce one that's focused on unrestricted, and then we, we produce one that's focused on um, small business set-asides, and then we produce two others, one focused on professional services opportunities and another on architecture, engineering, and construction. And those release each over the course of the, the next three or four weeks. All right, but give us a preview since uh, these webinars will be open to anyone that wants to sign up, but then without giving away all the goodies so you get lots of signups, but give us a sense of what the top line is anyhow and and what some of the best ones might be. Yeah, so so the small business ones tend to be a reflection of the unrestricted ones because in most cases these days when the government comes out with a a, a GWAC or a recompete of a major IDIQ, they have an unrestricted portion and a small business portion. So as you'd expect, there's a component for Alliance three. There's a component for the Oasis procurement. There's something similar. And the State Department has a major consolidation effort for IT services contracts called Evolve that also has that kind of flavor to it. It's almost like a, a sister, a set of sister contracts that, that go along with the unrestricted that are in the small business category. And let me ask you about the interplay between professional services opportunities and the top 20 unrestricted, because more and more the government is buying services as a percentage of dollars and products get delivered almost via those contracts. And so when you have the top 10 professional services opportunities, how are they different from what might be in unrestricted generally in IT? I think it's been a transition to professional services in a lot of the largest GWAC contracts. You know, Oasis and Alliant are sort of noteworthy. Alliant has more of a technology bent, but obviously a huge portion of it is professional services. I guess for a little bit of history, the Alliant contracts came first. The Oasis followed as a way for GSA to to not only provide a professional services framework for other agencies to buy professional services, but also as a way to to get 
defense agencies a, a contract vehicle that they could use for a lot of their professional services work. You know, most of what we see in defense agencies is, is cost plus type, types of contracts. And uh, a lot of the prior, you know, kind of original GWAX that GSA came out with didn't support uh, didn't support cost plus. So that was a, a major swing to get GSA, or I'm sorry, to get defense agencies adopting GSA GWAX. I guess the other thing that's, you know, th- to your point, you know, we have seen agencies increasingly rely on professional services contractors. And that's been one of the areas that GSA and their category management kind of emphasis and focus has really been trying to to provide vehicles that do support the professional services needs across government agencies, where historically we've seen agencies kind of rely on their own vehicles. So it was, it was almost GSA kind of providing their own framework to help agencies uh, acquire these types of services more cost effectively. And by the way, have you noticed in reality a drop in lowest price technically acceptable types of contracts? I mean, DOD promised to do that, but it wasn't necessarily happening last year. I would say my assessment there is that that ebbs and flows with budget uncertainty and and uh, budget tightness. When we had the you know the Budget Control Act kind of rearing its head in in its most profound way, when agency budgets were coming down back in the early 2000 kind of 10 decade, that's when agencies really turned LPTA as as a way of you know hey we don't have as much money this year as we did last year, so we have to find a way to cut costs. And we're going to have to put the screws to contractors to, in order to, to achieve that as we've kind of emerged from that into an environment where agencies generally expect their budgets to be bigger next year. I think they're less likely to, to leverage LPTA unless it's for a set of services that they feel like quality is less important than, than dollar price. All right. To sum it all up then, for contractors, what's your best one or two pieces of advice to make sure they get their fair share starting in CR now and eventually the 2023 appropriations? I think one one thing I would call out for sure is if you have aspirations of being a prime contractor, you really need to be focusing on your ability to comply with a lot of the requirements of these contracts. I don't mean that lightly, but if you look at a lot of the scoring worksheets that they have for some of these large IDIQs, they're basically building compliance into the scoring. So if you look at the, the the score sheet, I've seen some as high as fifteen to twenty percent of the scoring is just your ability to comply with things like do you have a you know an approved accounting system? Do you have a manufacturing system? Do you have a, a subcontractor management system? Do you have ISO certifications? Things of that nature that are almost more about uh, your certifications rather than you know the nature of the quality of your work. And so those are almost uh, antes in order to be able to bid on these contracts. So. Getting ahead of that, it's not the kind of thing where the RFP comes out and you say, oh, quick, quick, let me go get these compliance capabilities. You, you have to really invest in them and decide they're important to you in advance. Um, and if you, you don't have the means to, to adopt them, you really need to be focusing on a partner strategy that allows you to support somebody who does. That could be a business opportunity, compliance as a cloud service. <laughs> That's correct. Though it has a, a lot of touch to a lot of different functional organizations. I mean, it touches everything from your HR team to your finance team, and, and of course, increasingly to your IT and security team, even facilities in a lot of cases in terms of how you handle information. It's got a pretty broad reach. It also affects your supply chain. I mean, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's definitely an example of where, in addition to the, the category management elements that we're seeing, the increasing compliance requirements are definitely raising the, the barriers to entry for, for companies that, that don't have the resources to invest in this type of stuff. Kevin Plexico is Senior Vice President for Information Solutions at Dell Tech. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about those upcoming webinars at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at 
at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.